If you care to follow along, this is found on page 303 in the Pew Bibles. 2 Samuel chapter 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Look, we are your bone and flesh. For some time while Saul was king over us, it was you who led out Israel and brought it in. The Lord said to you, It is you who shall be shepherd of my people Israel, who shall be ruler over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is now the city of David. David had said on that day, Whoever would strike down the Jebusites, let them get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, those, those whom David hates. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into this house. David occupied the stronghold and named it the city of David. David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. King Haram of Tyre sent messengers to David, along with cedar trees and carpenters and masons who built David a house. David then perceived that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. In Jerusalem, after he came from Hebron, David took more concubines and wives, and more sons and daughters were born to David. These are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemamoa, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ipar, Elushua, Mephang, Jephiah, Elishema, Elidia, and Eliphelet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up in search of David. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? The Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. So David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. He said, The Lord has burst forth against my enemies before me like a bursting flood. Therefore, that place is called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. Once again, the Philistines came up and were spread out in the valley of Rephraim. When David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to the rear and come upon them opposite the balsam trees. When you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then be on the alert. 
For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. David did just as the Lord had commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba all the way to Gezer. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Marcia. Uh, boys and girls who are registered for Story Keepers can head out to Story Keepers. Miss Tara will be waiting for you there. Or, there she is at the door. If you arrived since the beginning of the service, I'm not going to complain, but I'm going to say welcome. Great to see you all. It's uh, This is probably the fullest we've seen it uh, since we started up again. It's uh, wonderful to see, and uh, praise God that we're getting back to some form of normality. So you're all very welcome. Let me pray as we uh, prepare to look at the passage Marcia read. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you instruct us in, uh, in different ways, through different genres in the scriptures. And uh, as we look at this narrative today, this history, we pray that it would be instructive for our minds and our hearts that we would leave here encouraged uh, and knowing that we have heard the living God speak to us, that as we indeed breathe in your promises, we might be able to breathe out prayer and praise to you. But we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 26, 26 years ago this month, Tara and I graduated from uh, with our MDiv degrees, Master of Divinity degrees, from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary near Boston. The graduation speaker that day was Anne Graham Lotz, the daughter of Billy Graham, and I still remember to this day the opening line of her message. She began, I'm not gonna to try to do the Southern drawl. She mispronounced Isaiah, but apart from that, here's how it went. <laughs> Isaiah was a good man, but he was not a great man. Now I have to confess, I don't remember a thing that she said after that, which is probably similar to my sermons for many of you, but if I had to guess, it actually was on today's Daily Prayer Project Old Testament passage, if you read that this morning, Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah's vision of God in the temple, which totally transformed the prophet's understanding of God and of himself. That in Lot's word, Isaiah was a good man, but not yet a great man. It was the business analyst uh, Jim Collins, who perhaps is most famous for the line, good is the enemy of great. In his best-selling book, Good to Great, Collins conducted a five-year study exploring what turns good companies into great ones. Uh, many observers were surprised to learn that one of the key factors in the 11 good to great companies identified by Collins was leadership marked by two characteristics, steely determination and an attitude of humility. And then Jesus himself provided his own definition of greatness, which we saw last summer as we were working our way through the Sermon of the Mount. Uh, listen to these words in Matthew 5:19. Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That from Jesus' perspective, greatness is inextricably tied to obedience to his teachings and his commands. But the Bible doesn't just define greatness in words. It gives us pictures of greatness in action. And that's what we have 
in our passage today that Marcia read for us as we continue in our series through 2 Samuel. So 2 Samuel 5 is going to provide us with, with God's path to greatness. I'm not going to give you the sermon in a sentence up front today. We'll leave that to develop as we go along. But we will look at this chapter essentially in two parts. First of all, a collage of greatness, and secondly, growth into greatness. A collage of greatness and growth into greatness, also that we might see God's path to greatness. So first of all, a collage of greatness. As we, as we saw last week, the beginning of chapter 5 rounds out this long section that began in chapter 2. Chapter 2, David is anointed as king over the tribe of Judah, but for the next seven and a half years, there are 11 other tribes that have not yet recognized his rule, but are still pledging their allegiance uh, to the house of Saul. However, at the start of chapter 5, all that changes, and now all the tribes of Israel anoint David, hailing him as their rightful king. Look at their affirmation of David again in verses 1 to 2. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. It's an expression that's not unlike our phrase, in sickness or in health, or through thick and thin. We are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. And what that then follows through the rest of this chapter is, is something of a collage, a collection of vignettes which portray the establishment of David's kingdom and in turn the greatness of his kingship. And I say collage because what we have here is not a single flowing consecutive narrative, but rather a collection of episodes from different periods of David's reign placed side by side uh, by the narrator as he begins his account of David's rule. Just one example uh, to, to, to show how we know this chapter doesn't follow a strict chronological order. Verse 11, we read that King Hiram of Tyre sent masons and materials to build David a palace, but we actually know that didn't happen immediately after David's conquest of Jerusalem because Hiram's reign as king only overlapped with the last 10 years of David's 33-year reign over Israel. So we have a collage here. Let's look at the vignettes uh, illustrating David's greatness in this chapter. First of all, verses 6 to 8. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore, it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now again, here's the context. David has just been made king over all of Israel, now as well as just Judah. He's uniting the separated tribes, but now he needs a center for his new government. His current base had been in Hebron, but that was far too far to the south, wouldn't attract the allegiance of the northern tribes of Israel. If he went to the north, he would leave out the southern tier. So he needed a non-Israelite, non-Judaic site, a non-partisan location. And Jerusalem, or as it was called up to this point, Jabus, was, a, a, was just the ticket. Jabus was a small fortified city occupied by a small subset of the Canaanites called the Jebusites, and it was set right along the border between Judah and Israel. 
It had never been in the possession of either Israel or Judah. It, had, it, had therefore, it was therefore the perfect location for David in his task to foster and coalesce the 12 tribes of Israel into a form of union. But in addition, here was a, another connection between David and Abraham to add to the one we saw last week with relation to Hebron. That is, the conquering of the Jebusites would be a fulfillment of a promise made all the way back in Genesis 15 when God had entered into a covenant with Abraham and had told Abraham that one of the things that he would do was that he would give to Abraham's descendants the conquered Jebusites. And so here's the fulfillment, some a thousand years later, but he's fulfilling the promise. Remember, God's will, as we saw last week, in God's way, in God's time, even if it takes a millennium, God keeps his promises. So in verse 7, the narrator then tells us that David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. The stronghold was the city's fortress located on the southeastern ridge of what would later become Jerusalem. It was this ridge overlooking the Kidron Valley, which was known as Zion. And the significance of this event should not be lost on us even 3,000 years on, because this is the first reference in the Bible to Zion, but it's certainly not the last. Zion would become a particularly evocative term, especially in the Psalms and in the prophets, and that's partly because the name then was taken and applied to the hill on the north side of the city in Solomon's time where the temple was built. Mount Zion came to refer to the Temple Mount, and from there, the term Zion and Mount Zion came to refer to the entire city of Jerusalem itself or to its citizens that is God's people. And that helps explain why we then find this language of Zion and Jerusalem in the New Testament. Those of you who were here a few weeks ago when we were looking at Hebrews 12 may remember that the preacher to the Hebrews says to his Christian audience, you have come, you have already come to Mount Zion. He's not talking there about a physical hill in Jerusalem. Zion now is the heavenly reality to which the earthly reality had pointed, which the, which the preacher to Hebrews now also refers to as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The city that all of God's people now looked forward to is not old Jerusalem, it's new Jerusalem. But here in 2 Samuel 5 is where all those promises are traced back to the time when it became David's royal city. The significance of Jerusalem for God, David's kingdom is therefore key to understanding Jerusalem in all of God's promises. That is, we look forward to the new Jerusalem because of the significance to begin with of the old Jerusalem. Now, of course, before Jerusalem could become the city of David, David and his army had to capture the city. Some something that no one had been able to do up to that point because of the city's excellent defensive position, the end of its own little ridge with steep slopes on three sides that made it hard to capture. I think that's the point of the comment here about the blind and the lame. That phrase you may have noticed mentioned three times, including the statement that David hated the blind and the lame. I don't think that's uh, talking about some kind of prejudice against the disabled. I think rather what we see here, um, we know that because a few chapters later in chapter 9, we're going to see David's care of Jonathan's disabled son Mephibosheth. And also Jesus, the greater David, was, uh, was one who took care of the blind and the lame and healed them. 
I think rather what we see here is, is David turning the Jebusite taunts back on them. That is, the Jebusites claimed their city was so impenetrable that you didn't even need to have fit people, fit men to defend the city. But they hadn't factored in David's plan concerning their water shaft. Now, the Hebrew isn't totally clear here. Either David's soldiers captured Jerusalem by entering through the water shaft to get into the city, or it might be that they took control of the city's water supply and so were able to capture it without bloodshed. You know, the first option is probably the preferred option of any film director, seeing the dramatic climb up through the water shaft to take the city. But no one can be 100% sure. The bottom line is we know that David took Jerusalem. We just don't know exactly how he did it. So that's the first vignette. The second vignette in this, in this collage of David's greatness comes via King Hiram of Tyre to the north of, of Israel. Now, there aren't too many places mentioned in the Bible that I can claim to have been to, but this actually is one of them. We, uh, we went to, here I am on the beach in Tyre when we visited Fiona in 2014 when she was doing her gap year in Lebanon. So we can take that down. Now, some 3,000 years before... Before that photo was taken, the king of that place, King Tyre, had sent envoys to David along with cedar logs, carpenters, and stonemasons who had then built a palace for David. And again, there's a connection with Abraham here because remember, God had promised to Abraham that he would bless Israel in order to bless the nations. That is, God's kingdom was never intended to be uninational. It was meant to be multinational. And perhaps here, even without the king realizing it, his deference to King David is a glimpse that that kingdom is going to spread, is going to expand. But I want to finish up this first point by looking briefly at the third and fourth vignettes of David's greatness, namely in his defeats of the Philistines. These two vignettes are introduced in verses 17 to 18. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Raphaim. Now given that the Philistines are enemy number one of David throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it's actually a little surprising that they haven't made an appearance at all through the first four chapters of 2 Samuel. But in true Arnold Schwarzenegger style, here in chapter 5, they come along with, we're back. And given their history with Israel, plus the fact that they've just discovered the extent to which David had earlier taken them for a ride when he'd convinced them that he was on their side, not Israel's, they're just a little miffed. They're a little un unhappy, to say the least. So they decide, we're going to nip this little monarchy in the bud. However, they hadn't realized they would not be a match for God's newly anointed king and his army. So just as we saw David do last week before he would go up to Hebron, David asks the Lord here, what should I do? Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hands? God tells David to go, for he would indeed give them into David's hand, and that's exactly what he does. Apparently, the Philistines are gluttons for punishment. They come back a second time. David again asks the Lord. This time, God provides a different tactic, telling David to approach them from the rear and then to listen. Verse 24, And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. 
And with that, the narrator rounds out his collage of greatness. But that brings us to our second point, growth into greatness, because nestled in the middle of this collage is what I think is the central point of the entire chapter. Verse 10, David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. It's hard to understate the changes in David's circumstances at this point, because all all of a sudden, he's king of Israel, entire Israel, the central person of this nation. All his life until this point, he had been marginal and living secretly and defensively, and now he's front and center in a position of command, living royally there in Jerusalem. It's a massive change, and any of us who ever have experienced change know that change can affect us in one of two ways. Change can reduce and diminish us. It can cut us off from our roots. It can cause us to to panic such that we abandon our past. Or alternatively, change can be a catalyst for growth, can stimulate our development as we start to go deeper and longer and larger such that our lives become more, not less. Thomas Merton was a writer and a Trappist monk in a Kentucky monastery, argued by some to be one of the most famous converts to Christianity in the 20th century. Prior prior to his conversion, he was an avant-garde, wild-living, gregarious New York intellectual. But in her biography of Merton, Monica Furlong wrote that Merton's former friends just couldn't imagine what he could have become given what he had been, but they certainly speculated. Well, after 13 years of Merton being in the monastery, one of his college professors, Mark Doran, visited him and then reported back to the outside world what he'd found. And Doran said, of course, he looked a little older, but as we sat and talked, I could see no important difference in him. Tom, I said, laughing, you haven't changed at all. And Merton replied, why would I? Here, our duty is to become more ourselves, not less. King David is an example of someone for whom change was a catalyst to become more himself, not less. And that growth is signaled by this phrase, greater and greater. David's story is a story of growth into maturity as David became more David, as he became greater and greater, as he proceeded, as the message translation puts it, with a a longer stride and a larger embrace. But notice the specific reason the narrator provides to explain David's growth into greatness. For the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. Here's part one of the Sermon on the Sentence, part one of God's path for us to greatness. Greatness is grounded in living with God. Greatness is grounded in living with God. Now, I suspect not too many of you watched the Eurovision Song Contest last Saturday. The chances are most of you have probably not even heard of it, although perhaps a few more of you have heard of it as a result of the film that came out based on it last year, starring Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams. Never fear, I'll tell you what it is. Eurovision is an annual song contest featuring participants from mostly mostly European countries. It's been actually going for 65 years And I grew up watching this thing religiously. And so I still try to watch it when I could get it 
uh, even now. Even though it's cringy, it's filled with really bad songs and even worse outfits. And it's also a venue in Europe for political point scoring, hence the post-Brexit UK getting zero points last Saturday in the contest. But the winning song this year was by an Italian rock band called Maniskin, and here are some of the lyrics of their winning song. Get ready for this. I've written on a tombstone, in my house there's no God, but if you find time's meaning, you'll climb back up from your oblivion. And there's no wind stopping the natural power from the right point of view. You feel the intoxication of the wind with wax wings on your back. I'll go look for that high. Now, it's not exactly the Beatles, she loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and perhaps something was lost in translation from Italian to English, I don't know. But even granting that, what's of note here in these lyrics is that there really are completely in line with the spirit of our age. That in a world increasingly devoid of the divine, it's now up to each of us to seek greatness. Or in the words of the song, to climb back up from your oblivion, to look for that high. And we're each free to do that, our culture says, however we decide is right for us. So many in Western culture, therefore, have bought into what the Canadian writer Charles Taylor calls expressive individualism, where in the words of a very different non-Eurovision song sung by Queen Elsa, you let it go because there's no right, no wrong, no rules. We each get to define who we are, the morality of what we do, and the path to meaning, the path to significance, the path to greatness. Now, in the end, the path of expressive individualism is a path, because it's followed without reference to God, that doesn't actually take any of us where we think we're, we want it to go. It doesn't lead to greatness. It actually leads to smallness and to pettiness and to conflict and to a cramped life. And in contrast here, David shows us the key to growing in true greatness. It is a life lived with God, the Lord God of hosts, or as other translations put it, the Lord God Almighty. Life with God. A few years ago, a number of us here read a book by Sky Jathani called With, Reimagining the Way You Relate to God, in which he explains that, the view, that the, the view you and I have of the Christian faith can really essentially be boiled down to a preposition. And the gist of what Jathani wrote in the book was this, that if your view of the Christian life can be described primarily as life under God or life over God, life from God, or even life for God, then you have a distorted view of the Christian life, and it will probably lead to disastrous consequences. Some of us do live by a paradigm of life under God. That is, we see God in a simple cause and effect terms. If we obey his commands, then he will bless our lives, bless our families, bless our nation. We think that God is obligated to save us from suffering and calamity and to pour blessings into our lives if we simply are obedient to his rules. Others of us live by a paradigm of life over God. We're the ones who, who look for formulas for successful living, who make our plans, and then we ask God to bless them. God really, therefore, in this situation, is no more than a source of principles or laws to supply our material desires. Thirdly, there's the model of life from God. Those of us in this category want God's blessings, but if we're honest, we're not particularly interested in God himself. We want the good gifts, but not the giver of the gifts. 
And then fourthly, some of us live by a paradigm of life for God. And Jethani writes here that this describes those who, who the, the most significant thing, significant thing in life is, is expanding accomplishments, uh, accomplishing great things in, in, in God's service. Now, it's important to understand that each of these paradigms of life captures some element of truth. It's not that they're devoid of truth, but his point is that each one of them, in and of themselves, is a deficient view of Christianity. Each of the four postures ends up being ultimately about our attempt to control God and to control our lives. And so Jethani asks, if each of those paradigms is deficient, how then should we live? What is the correct preposition for life? And he says, and I think he's right, it's with. Life with God. That's what we were designed for, to know and experience communion with God, a life of faith, hope, and love. And it's that relationship, life with God, the Lord God Almighty, that sets us on a course for true greatness like David. Well, then God's path to greatness is further fleshed out here in verse 12, as we see this path not only involves a presence, God with us, but also, if I can put it this way, a product. Look at verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David knew. Here was the faith of David, trusting the promises that God had made to him and knowing that the present situation had come about because as ever, God had been faithful to those promises. And what David knew is summed up here in two points. First of all, it was the Lord who had established him as king over Israel. You know, on the surface, as you read through these early chapters so far, you could think that there's a combination of complex factors, really, that led David to become king, including lies and betrayals and murder and ambition and treachery. But what David understood was that it wasn't Abner or Joab or Rechab or Banab or the young Amalekite that we've seen over the last two weeks who had established David's kingdom. It was the Lord, and God and David knew it. And secondly, David knew why the Lord had made him a great king. God had exalted David's kingship for the sake of his people Israel. David wasn't a king for his own sake. The Lord had made David a great king for the good of his people. And that, in turn, as we've already noted, was not just for the good of the people, because God's promise to Abraham was that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the Israelite people through his descendants. So God's purpose declared to Abraham and now being worked out through David would ultimately become for the sake of all people and ultimately be realized through the person and work of David's greater son, Jesus himself, because it was Jesus who actually in the context of a discussion about greatness with his disciples in Mark chapter 10 announced that he had come not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And you take David and you take Jesus and you realize, well, here's the second part of the definition of greatness. Greatness is grounded in living with God, but it's manifested in living for others. Greatness is grounded in living with God, manifested in living for others. Now, once we realize that greatness is defined by the Bible this way. We realize that, that we don't actually have to be the anointed king of an ancient Israel to be, to be great. The path to greatness for us 
comes the same way, by living with God and living for others. And I have to say, I see that greatness amongst you all, all the time. I've seen it this week. I saw it this week demonstrated, for example, in someone helping with housing needs for a Hispanic family and leading college students in a Bible study and giving extravagant gifts, financial gifts to help those in need and selflessly helping family members who are really struggling right now and sharing your faith with those who don't yet know Jesus. And I also know there's been much greatness going on here that I haven't seen or heard about. Those of you who are young parents caring tirelessly, tirelessly and lovingly for your infants and, the ch and your children. And for those of you who haven't given up on that person that everybody else has given up on. And I, I know there are many other examples. Because you see, greatness doesn't have to be grand in order to be greatness. But to the extent that you're living intentionally with God and living for others, that's the path to greatness. Now, in closing, some of us may say, maybe some, some of you watching from home today, you know, living with God sounds attractive, it sounds empowering, but what exactly does that mean? What does that look like? And we need to acknowledge that David isn't the ultimate example here. In fact, when the narrator tells us in this chapter of David's many wives and concubines, it's a clue that the greatness of his kingdom at times wasn't actually that great at all. But let me point you to the ultimate example of what it means to live with God. And it relates to what we celebrate today on Trinity Sunday. You know, in a sense, the experts at living with God are the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because for eternity, those three persons have lived with each other in community, in family, in a circle of love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. For eternity, they've known and loved each other. From time past, before there was time, they were in the bosom of each other. They delighted in each other, enjoyed each other's beauty and company, poured love into each other. They were with each other. And then one day they said, let's expand the circle. Let's expand the community. Let's create beings who can be, become part of this circle, part of the circle of love. Let's create people who can be with us, live with us. And so they did. They created us. They didn't do it because they needed us. There wasn't something missing that we would be able to fill. God created us because such is his love and his generosity and his kindness that he wanted others to know the love and joy that already had been theirs for an eternity in this circle of love. And everything that followed that creation of men and women in God's plan of redemption has been about this goal of withness. So the Father sends Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, to make the withness a reality. And Jesus' life and his death on the cross to pay for everything that alienates us from God. And his resurrection, defeating death that would separate us from God for eternity. And Jesus' ascension then and sending of his spirit so that he can dwell within us such that he's with us 24-7. It was all with the goal of this withness. So that as Jesus said before his ascension, Matthew 28, 20, and now I am with you always, always 
until the end of the age. And because of that, the path to greatness is open to every one of us living with God and living then for others. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you on this day. We thank you for your generosity and your kindness and all that you have done so that we might know you as our God, but also know what it is to live with you. We praise you and thank you for the fellowship, the communion that we enjoy with you, and for the difference that that makes, the path that sets us on, on to greatness so that we can live not for ourselves, but for others, for the sake of others. Lord, help us, help us to work on this in our lives. Help us to work on what it means to live with you more this week, seeking communion with you, seeking fellowship with you in word and prayer with one another on our own, and then seeing that path of greatness borne out in how, how we care for one another, how we care for those in need, how we love others. Help us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.